0: I think it is uh, Todd Lanting's fault that I'm a uh, uh, reason that I'm here today and next week. He was a wonderful student several years ago, and uh, I'm thrilled to hear that he has joined you over these last three years and also that you give him vacation now and then. <laughs> he uh, and I talked about uh, uh several things that uh, I might speak on. And uh, we landed on uh, a couple of uh, talks related to um, money, related to our resources, related to the difficult financial times that we find ourselves in. Um, And I think they're uh, a little different than what uh, you might expect, but uh, he did uh, apparently uh, put something in the uh, bulletin that uh, is probably exaggerated um, about my writing, uh, but that was kind of him anyway. And you already heard the announcement about the books. I would like for us uh, this morning to look at a passage out of Luke 19, and if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Luke 19, verse 1, and we will read Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation "...has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. I think it was about two years ago when I caught a segment of Nightline and a woman who had recently uh, written a book... Uh, as far as we could tell, uh, nothing religious about it, on uh, making and forming intimate relationships, was interviewing and interacting with uh, several young single adults, uh, particularly single women, who were part of the scene that you can find still today, flourishing in every large city around the country. Uh, A scene that, uh, particularly on weekends, takes uh, young singles looking for partners to nightclubs, to uh, dance halls, to bars, to places where uh, they hope they will meet somebody who they are attracted to and... um, Maybe it will turn into something longer term, but maybe it will just be a a one night date. But uh, if they're lucky or that's at least the way they think about it, uh, it will lead not only to uh, an evening uh, in this establishment together, but they will go back to one or the other's homes and uh, perhaps even have sex together. And as the interviewer was asking them a variety of questions, one exchange really caught my ear. When when one young woman was asked, why do you do it? Why do you keep doing it with so many different men? Her answer was, I need to still feel that I am valued. That somebody values me. And I thought, wow. Has she not found that anywhere else in life? And it's so fleeting. And what happens when... This method doesn't work anymore. If you know the younger adult scene today, you know that this scenario, unfortunately, is not unique to the secular world. There are Christians caught up in it as well. I think the other thing that most caught my fascination about the Nightline segment was that these were not uh, young people down on their luck financially. The amount of money that uh, was reported that was spent on an average evening out, and the amount that they spent for new clothes and other ways to make themselves look attractive, made it clear that these were not the the down and out of society that the church hears so much about, and rightly so, of our need to minister to them. These were what uh, some people have called the up and out. The very financially prosperous, or at least uh, spending as if they were. And yet, feeling something hugely missing in their lives and trying to meet that need. If you were to ask me who in Jesus' life, in His ministry, in His sphere of influence, best exemplified the up and out, there isn't anybody I can think of better than Zacchaeus. A chief tax collector. Any form of tax collector was generally despised by upstanding Jewish religious folk because they had sold out to the invading, occupying empire, the Romans, and were collecting taxes from fellow Jews that went to pay for Roman occupation and government. Not only that, the way they made their own living was by charging more taxes than they had to pass on to Rome and therefore uh, getting a a take, as it were, from the taxes they received from others. If you were a chief tax collector, it guaranteed that you were wealthy and it guaranteed that a fair amount of that wealth was ill-gotten. We don't need to comment on the IRS. We can we can understand this in the first century, <laughs> completely by itself. Zacchaeus had plenty of money, but as the story unfolds, we get the sense he had few, if any, friends. There are four short episodes to this story, and then a conclusion. And I think we can derive a principle from each of the episodes and a unifying theme at the end that ties it all together. The first little segment, I'm simply following the paragraphing of the NIV or TNIV, is verses 1 to 4 about the need for the up and out to be in. If BBS talked about Zacchaeus this week, I have no idea what they did. Many times Sunday school children learn this as uh, a favorite gospel story. Chances are they would have uh, taken away, or at least uh, most adults who remember the story of Zacchaeus from childhood, come away with, um, oh yeah, that was the guy who was real small and he climbed the sycamore tree probably the two least significant things in the story. (laughs) Or is there something there? For someone who was up and out, who was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, and who wanted to see who Jesus was, Why? We're not told. We can speculate. Everybody had heard about him by this time in his ministry. It's near the end of his roughly three-year ministry. They had heard about his miracles. They had heard about his teachings. They had heard about his conflicts with the religious authorities. Was Zacchaeus just a curiosity seeker? Famous person coming to town like to get a good seat for the show? Or was he hoping for something more? Despite his position of power in ancient cultures, like many still in our world today, but not so much in the Western world, first century Judaism was a culture of honor and shame. And no matter how powerful and wealthy And comfortable Zacchaeus' life may have been, as a son of Abraham, as a fellow Jew, he had very little honor and a lot of shame in the eyes of his peers, of his countrymen. Was he looking for someone who might value him? Being short wasn't a good thing in the ancient world any more than it is today. How long ago did we sing that song, Short People Got No Reason for Living? Not a Christian theme, but uh, (laughs) most cultures of the world have implicitly valued tall people over short people. And in case you're thinking that there's, there's some cultural feature of first century Israel that would not make it a silly picture to have a short tax collector climbing a tree to look for Jesus, there isn't. It would have looked incredibly silly then, too. The, the man has already lost face. In the eyes of his townspeople, he apparently feels he has a little more to lose, but, but certainly climbing the tree isn't helping matters. Maybe it's appropriate to infer that he senses his need to be in. How do we try to fit in? How do we try to meet the need to belong? Join a club? Join a gang? Join a fraternal or a professional organization? Be a part of a church or a Christian community? Since the age of 15, my uh, closest. Friends and and my most prized fellowship and and those who have valued me when I certainly didn't deserve it have always been in Christian circles. But most of the world who has not had that kind of an experience does not naturally think of church as the place to go to be valued. Sadly. Sadly. For all kinds of reasons. Some of which are our fault and some of which aren't. But that leads us to the second stage of the story. God's people must initiate meeting the needs of the up and out. They're not going to break down our doors looking for us. Usually. And even in this story, although Zacchaeus took some initiative to put himself in a position where he could be seen, he's clearly still keeping himself at least at arm's length, if not more so. How will Jesus respond? That brings us to verses 5 and 6. We've already been told that he is on his way to Jerusalem, way back in chapter 9. This is his last long period of itinerant preaching before the climactic climb up the Jericho Road from the Jordan Valley to the Israelite capital. He has already predicted what's going to happen to him there. He knows his fate awaits him on a cross. He could be forgiven for being preoccupied with that calling. In fact, verse 1 suggests he did not have initially any intention in stopping in Jericho. He was just passing through. But in verse 5 we read, when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was in the tree, he looked up and called to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. How did he know his name? Well, he's Jesus. (laughs) He knows everything. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe Zacchaeus is a well-known public figure, too. Hard to imagine that he wasn't, given his position. Hard to imagine that Jesus hadn't heard some talk about Zacchaeus, (laughs) complain about Zacchaeus. Wish they could plot a revolt against Zacchaeus. However he knows his name, he uses it. He calls him by name, which in and of itself shows he values him. But then he does something shocking. He says, I must stay at your house today. And once again, if you're wondering if there was something in first century culture that that we don't practice any longer, that... uh, would have made it natural to invite yourself and a whole bunch of disciples over to somebody else's house. The answer is there wasn't. In fact, if anything, this was even more of a cultural taboo than it might be today. Now, on the one hand, Zacchaeus was rare among the people of Jericho in that this probably wouldn't have created a financial problem. See, when you go to somebody's house to stay, that means the hosts are obligated to give you a very nice meal. And don't forget, Jesus has all these people constantly tagging along with Him, so you've got to feed them too. And then you're offering them a place to stay for the night. And then you're probably giving them a light breakfast in the morning. And if you can, maybe some provisions to tide them over until they get to wherever they're going on the next day of their journey. This isn't just a casual meeting at Starbucks. Zacchaeus, though, can probably afford it. And so, equally surprisingly, he welcomes him. Gladly. However, countercultural the invitation, the self invitation was, Zacchaeus takes it as a fabulous compliment that Jesus is not like those other Jewish leaders who would have shunned him, but cares enough about him to want to come and spend time with him. Do we do that with the folks who are? Up and out in our society? If we live in the suburbs, it's, it's hard sometimes to apply the teaching of Scripture about the down and out. Unless we're involved in urban ministry or go overseas. And there are plenty of opportunities to do both of those and, and we ought to take advantage of them. But right around us in suburbia are plenty of up and outs. The single parent struggling to find time for all her or his responsibilities. The married couple that few people know have so fragile a marriage that it's on the verge of breaking up. The dysfunctional family where kids and parents and kids and kids and parents and parents and if I've missed any combinations, throw in the rest are constantly fighting, or have made a truce to just be silent and say nothing, or the aging people who still have money enough. To live where they are, but not the ability to take care of everything around the house or around the yard. So many ways that if we take the time to get to know those around us, those we work with, those we go to school, <coughs> excuse me, those we go to school with, but we have to take the time. We have to make it a priority. We may be passing through and we need to uh, slow down and stop. But if we do that, a third thing will happen, almost inevitably. There will be people who object. And tragically, in many cases, it will be fellow Christians who will object. Just as some of the Jews in Jericho in verse 7 objected. It says, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. A a sinner in the sense of of being immoral, uh, unethical, uh, yes, definitely But a sinner also in the sense of being one whose occupation and practice had rendered him almost permanently impure, defiled, ritually speaking, according to the ritual law of Judaism. And in some ways, in terms of the stigma and the ostracism that was associated with that, that was the worst Crime. He's going to be the guest of a sinner. Some translations put sinner in quotation marks for that very reason. Don't you realize, Jesus, that you are going to become ritually defiled by eating with one who is ritually defiled? Or so many would have thought. They didn't uh, factor in the possibility that Jesus' holiness might be more contagious, (laughs) might be more catching than Zacchaeus' impurity. How often do we replicate That mistake as well. I think of uh, an older man who came to uh, a Sunday school class I taught here in the Denver area for many years. At first, he would uh, dress in a full suit. (laughs) Only a handful got that dressed up for Sunday school or church where I was teaching Before uh, he became a believer, I remember one day the uh, person who was in charge of lining up uh, ushers and it was a communion Sunday, so they would also pass out communion, came looking for anybody who was male and dressed in a suit to participate And he looked at this fellow and said to me, he's been around for a while, hasn't he? We could ask him. Not even any questions about man's spiritual state. Praise the Lord, he later became a believer. And after he became a believer, he started dressing down. (laughs) In fact, sometimes he'd come in the grubbiest jeans of anybody in the class. And maybe he hadn't shaved. And usually it was deliberate because he had picked up that there was a minority of folks who were just judging based on the externals. He was a wonderfully kind and compassionate man both before and after his conversion, but. He could spot a hypocrite a mile away, (laughs) at least when it came to if he was being treated a certain way because of how he was dressed. Maybe you can think of some other analogies. Is it worth the risk? Is it worth the almost inevitable objection by at least a few in Christian circles if we begin to hang out with and befriend and even bring to church those whose values are not ours? Do they have to become like us first before they are welcome? Or can they be welcome first in hopes that they will come to share Christian values? And then let's make sure that they really are Christian values that we're concerned to impart and not just cultural ones like appearance. The story of Zacchaeus says that it's worth it because sometimes it can work. The process can work wonders even to the point of stewardship. Verse 8. Now, that's a strange way of phrasing things. Why didn't I say even to the point of conversion? (laughs) Well, it's because, interestingly, this little story never says anything about the moment of Zacchaeus' conversion. We have to infer it. Jesus and his little troop go to Zacchaeus' home. The people see it, begin to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. We infer from all of the cultural standards of the day that uh, a lavish feast was prepared and Jesus and the twelve had uh, a wonderful meal with Zacchaeus and his family. Perhaps some of his close associates were invited. And as all of that was being prepared, a lengthy, several hours long process, Jesus and Zacchaeus would have had plenty of time to begin to talk. Presumably, since we read repeatedly in the Gospels that that Jesus' recurring theme in his public ministry was to tell people, repent for the kingdom is at hand, that, that Jesus unpacked those concepts for Zacchaeus. Presumably, at at some point, Zacchaeus began to understand, began to agree, began to cross the threshold of faith. But if so, we're not told. What we are told is that maybe in the middle of the meal, everybody is quiet and listening, he stands up and says to Christ, look, Lord, here and now I give Half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's boku bucks or shekels. Give half your money to the poor, repay four times all those you've defrauded. Once Zacchaeus got done doing that, he may not have been wealthy anymore. Maybe we're to imagine him as being so rich that he at least could live above the poverty line. But um, this is amazing sacrifice. And that's what Luke chooses to highlight. Luke, the one gospel writer who more than any other stresses issues of rich and poor, money matters, stewardship and the like. Oh, all kinds of people have made professions of faith throughout history. All kinds of people are coming to Christ around the world today. Or at least, they raise a hand at a service, walk an aisle, fill out a card, pray a prayer. But the question is, has anything really happened Did it take? Has the Spirit come in? Because if the Spirit comes into a person's life, by definition, they begin a process of transformation. Not one that can be quantified. Not one that can be itemized that you will do X, Y, and Z. It may look slightly different for every believer who's ever lived, but there will be some change. And there will be some change in one of those areas that is a real tip off to whether God has touched a life. How we spend our money. And do we give generously of it to the Lord and His work? And that's what Zacchaeus models. It's not just a profession of faith that might turn out to have been superficial or without understanding. This is whole life discipleship and transformation. That Jesus, valuing this one individual that no one else valued in the same way, has now so touched by His countercultural behavior without a command being given This isn't the rich young ruler where Jesus says, sell all, and he says, sorry, can't do that. Zacchaeus voluntarily makes this amazing sacrificial offer. Are we showing our transformed life that we truly know Christ because we give generously to the Lord and to His work, even in a recession, especially in a recession, when the needs are so much greater, and the bulletin has parentheses around certain numbers, which I take it means a shortfall. (laughs) There are some churches in our area who are over-budget, surprising even their leadership this year and last. Shouldn't be that way, but, but the people have understood this is the time to give more generously and cut back on what they're spending on themselves. Do any of us need to learn that lesson? So what's the point of it all? Is there a a unifying theme or message in these ever-so-brief glimpses of what undoubtedly was a much fuller and more detailed uh, encounter between Christ and Zacchaeus? I think there is. I don't think we have to guess. I think Jesus comes out and says it rather plainly in verses 9 and 10. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And that's what we're to be about as well. Our mission, like Christ, is to seek and to save the lost. This wasn't a distraction from Jesus' mission to go up to Jerusalem to die. This was part of it and an illustration of that sacrificial giving that is often misunderstood even by those who claim to be God's people. Are there people or places, that we need to go, that we need to befriend, that even some of our Christian friends or family members will say, you're associating with whom? You know, they could have a bad influence on you. And sometimes that's true, especially if you're 14. But if you're 38 and still worried about somebody having a bad influence on you rather than the Spirit of God touching them through you, what has not happened in the last 26 years? (laughs) Or 54? (laughs) Or 78? Or lady earlier said she wouldn't give the highest age, so I guess I shouldn't either. (laughs) What would it look like for your life and for mine? If we became convinced that holiness, winsomeness, enthusiasm for the gospel was more contagious, I know that makes it sound like a disease, was more catching than others' potentially corrupting influence on us. Because we were mature enough and we were trusting the Spirit enough to guide us in those ways. That's usually how people come to Christ. Do you remember when you did? If you have... I bet you can tell stories of some people who thought outside of the box. Maybe acted outside of the box. Have you jumped back into the box in the years since? Imitating Jesus among the the up and out. I don't hear much about it. But the up and out, are next door, sometimes, and all around us and in our workplaces and in our schools, can we make a, a commitment to take one step of deepening one friendship or relationship with somebody who is up and out already this week? Even if that means, uh, well, here's something only a hit-and-run preacher can get away with. Even if it means saying, no, I won't go to the 13th church meeting this week. Um, I need to spend some time with a non-Christian. Just make sure you get to the other 12. No, I'm just... Does everybody have somebody in mind? Can we lift that person or those people up to the Lord? Shall we pray together? Lord, we confess to you that it's way too easy to get comfortable in our Christian activities and not make time for those who need to know you. Lord, what uh, a blessing to see so many enthusiastic kids and no doubt many others that weren't on the platform this morning. And no doubt at least a few of those who have family members who don't know you. Would you help all here at West Bowles who have found out where kids live and parents' names and emails and phone numbers to, to follow up and where there's any openness at all to begin to build some kind of relationship with those who need to know you It may be a long way from being ready to be invited to a church activity, but be happy to come to someone's house in the neighborhood for dinner. And those that uh, have laid heavy on our hearts for a long time because we see them every day at work, at school, in the neighborhood, in the stores, on the streets... And we have talked to them and we know that they need You and they don't seem to be open. Help us not to give up on them. Help us watch for the Zacchaeus-like moments when they're showing some kind of curiosity. Still holding themselves at arm's length, but uh, a moment that You give us if we're alert and ready to take it. If not to invite ourselves to their home, maybe to invite them to ours. Or to go out somewhere on neutral ground. Lord, help us to be as creative as Jesus was. Help us to be as impervious to those who would criticize good faith efforts on our part, even if they're unconventional. What that looks like may look different for every person in this room, but would you lay one or more people or situations on our hearts that you won't let us forget about because you have called these people to yourself. And You've called us to be the means of bringing them to You, whether dramatically and quickly or over the long haul. May we, through Your Spirit, be more winsome than any other activity or group of friends these people could have so that they see how much we value them because you value them. And they will come to look for that value in you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.